You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. With over 200,000 locations throughout the U.S. and offering 12,000 different types of batteries, stop into your local Interstate Battery store today and let them help you find the right batteries for your everyday life. Welcome to the Transition Wild Podcast, brought to you by Expedition Archery. I'm your host, Adam Parr, and you're listening to episode number 46, where we talk with Jake Bell about setting up your bow for western hunting. Hello, and thanks again for tuning in to the Transition Wild Podcast, the number one source for western big game hunting. I appreciate you guys being here, and I hope you're getting jacked for elk season, because I am. We're... T-minus 60 days and counting, we're less than two months away from Colorado season kicking off, and uh, it'll be here before we know it, before I know it. (laughs) I am way behind the game. Uh, I just actually got my bow set up and uh, my Expedition Mako X, badass bow. I just actually posted a video review of that on my website and YouTube channel, so check that out when you get a chance if you're interested in, in taking a further look at Expedition. I highly recommend them. I'm actually in the process of recording and putting out a part two video to that where I take it out in the field, shoot it, and and really kind of review it as I'm shooting it, going through the draw cycle, the shot process. So this part one was more of a unboxing and video review. Part two will be me in the field and, and doing a little target practice downrange. So stay tuned to that. Uh, speaking of elk hunting, if you're coming out to Colorado this fall, make sure you head to Transition Wild and subscribe. I will send you the Colorado Beginner Elk Hunting Guide for free. And it's really just a 10-page PDF that walks you through getting started with hunting, selecting units, uh, scouting, gear you need to purchase, uh, weather, all that stuff that that goes into planning and preparing for a hunt. So make sure you do that. Go to transitionwild.com. I will send you that for free. All right. Today we have Jake Bell. He's my buddy. He, he's a really, really good dude and, and, and certainly probably the most knowledgeable person I've talked to or have had the chance to meet about archery and, and setting up your bow. He's a bow tech. He's been doing this for a number of years and he's only 26 years old. And I tell you what, his, his 
wealth and knowledge far exceeds his age. This guy knows literally every single detail about getting your bow set up properly. And a lot of that comes down to his passion and, um, you know, the detail that he pays attention to. And, and that's the first thing I noticed when he, he set up my bow for the first time, his, his attention to detail is unmatched and what he goes through to set up a bow, um, is unlike anything I've ever seen before. So I've had Jake on the show today to talk about, you know, going through the process of setting up your bow. We cover some terminology and, and really we dive into, you know, what's the ideal setup for Western big game. You're dealing with bigger animals such as elk, you're taking further shots and, we talk about arrow weight and tuning and, um, you know, the setup for durability and reliability. We talk about shooting form, all of the above. It's just a really informational hour. And I, uh, you know, took a lot away from this, but I also came away from this episode, like wanting to know more and, and asking more questions. And, and my mind is just going a million miles an hour after recording this because there's just so much more that I'm thinking about now on so many different levels in regards to my archery setup and how it can be improved and, and what I can do to make it better. So this is a really fun episode. I enjoyed having Jake on the show. So let's not wait any longer. Let's get Jake Bell on the line. Before we begin, today's episode is brought to you by Expedition Archery, manufacturer of the world's finest archery experience. Expedition bows combine aerospace level quality, innovative designs, and a fluid feel serious hunters demand. Test drive one today at your nearest archery retailer and view their full lineup at expeditionarchery.com. Why settle for status quo when opportunity and adventure awaits? Make your next hunt an expedition. All right, on the line with us now, we have Jake Bell. How's it going today, man? It's going well, man. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing good. It just seems like this is the crazy time of year getting prepped for hunting season and everything's just going a mile a minute. I can't get a free second. It sounds like you're in the same boat. (laughs) Yeah, very similar. It's funny how it goes. Everybody kind of tries to plan on having everything solidified in terms of their, their tags and their bow setups come like you know beginning of may and then for the for the majority of the time it seems like a lot of people end up scrambling this time of year but (laughs) it is what it is i guess (laughs) you know what the crazy thing is i mean i grew up in michigan and there was an archery shop it seemed like every (laughs) i was surrounded by like four within 30 minutes you know it's just not it's pretty common to have archery shops wherever you go at least in the southern part of the state where i grew up I went to Colorado and lived in Eagle. Like, there's nothing within the media area. I've either got to drive to Denver, up to Steamboat, over to Grand Junction. Grand Junction. It's literally like a two, two and a half hour drive to the nearest archery shop, and that's just a pain in the ass, man. So, <laughs> always oh, makes it no tough. doubt. Especially like if if you're somebody from the Midwest or the East or the South and have like a Western hunt plan, and you know, you, a lot of people try to be as prepared as they can but a lot of the times aren't and then you know stuff comes up on their way out or while they're on the hunt and they're just scrambling to get whatever cover needs to be covered once they're once they get there it's just yeah there's so many different variables you know yeah yeah well it sucks when you when you do have like a catastrophic like failure or something on a piece of equipment I've never personally had it happen knock on wood but I've been on a hunting trip with my brother 
and he had something going on with his bow and the strings and the cams and you know his bow was unshootable and <laughs> that really sucked you know but we scrambled found a shop made it happen but um have you ever i mean i'm sure you've kind of dealt with that stuff firsthand with people like come out and they're like oh shit you know this happened uh help me i i've never i've never dealt with it myself really? okay uh, thank god but I have dealt with it in terms of other people being in that position and me, you know, assisting them too many times to count. Yeah. Um, it's, it's crazy how much it happens. Yeah. So like you're on a hunt with somebody and something happens to one of their bows. No, I, well, I've had a few, I guess things that would fall along those lines where luckily I had some uh, tools and or another bow with me to, to help actually last year. Funny enough, I, a great, friend of mine we were whitetail hunting in south dakota and his, his bow was just a disaster just with the, <laughs> the stock stringing cables how many arrows he put through it and it just was not performing up to spec but i had two bows with me like i always try to do you know regardless of the hunt just because i, I know that you know you can't plan on and luckily he's the same draw i got him set up with my other bow and he was just i mean stacking arrows and um he ended up filling his tag on a really nice eight-pointer the next day with the bow that I brought along. So it's funny how, you know, stuff like that can happen. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's hilarious. Well, good to have a buddy like you around. Um, <laughs> well, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I want to I want to jump into like some archery stuff and 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 really you're a you're a bow technician. You've worked on bows forever. You really know your stuff. Uh, I've obviously had you work on my bows and and um, you're legit, man. You're you you really know what you're doing and you really take your time and the qualities there. And I want to get into all that and talk about different archery setups and western hunting and you know things that we can do, but I want to get a little bit on your background first, uh, you know, so I don't even know, you know, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Colorado? Where are you from? You know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So originally from Minnesota, um, wasn't sure what I wanted to do, you know, after high school ended up, you know, making a decision to come to steamboat. Um, a big part of it was, was ski racing cause they have an awesome racing team here. So that was definitely a huge part of the decision to come here and then in my first year there, uh, I met a guy that had an archery business out of his house that uh, is, a, is a very good friend of mine still. He, uh, you know, wanted to take his in-house business to uh, a small shop in town to expand it. And uh, he wanted to find somebody else to help him do it. And I was actually in the process of uh, transferring to a bigger university in Montana. And he asked me if I would uh, want to wanna be the one to, to help him out there. And I uh, ended up making the decision to, to stay in Steamboat and kind of uh, pursue that. And here we are, shoot, six, seven years later, and I'm still here. So That's really cool. That's really cool. What well, Now, when you got involved with, the, you know, doing the archery out of the house and then moving it into a shop, is that where a lot of your hands-on training came from, is, is directly from your friend, or did you have a little knowledge of working on bows before? No, it's funny how it works. Um so I was always just totally into my own setups. You know, I didn't have all the equipment initially, but I was just geeked out on all, you know, the accessory side of it and different bows and specs on bows. And then um, it, it turned into one of those things that kind of snowballed. Uh, his name is Justin, and Justin gave me what I would call an a incredible foundation 
to work from. And then, you know, after the first year and a half, two years, Justin started his own outfit and he was still there, you know, June through end of July, but it was really, um, for the most part, it, it kind of turned into to my show. Um, the busiest time of the year was just me in there. So what he gave me and then just tons of experience, you know, just so many bows in my hands being the only guy in there, especially in an area that's arguably the most, you know, sought after over the counter, you know, area with over the counter units surrounding us. There's so many guys that I saw in so many different bows in my hands at that time that it's one of those things where the more reps you get, the more, you know, profound of a, of a, um, intellect you have on the whole thing you know yeah and then I, I did go to the Hoyt University as well which um you know I I learned definitely some some stuff there but in terms of like hands-on nitty-gritty you know I, I don't know I don't know if I could have been in a better position to get to where I am now I'm I'm not gonna say I'm <laughs> something special but when you <laughs> touch that many bows and you have you know an understanding of how much goes into it and you know the drive to know as much as you possibly can um, I guess that that's kind of how you get there. Well, yeah. And, and, and that definitely shows obviously in your work and I'll, and I'll just be flat out honest, man, like going to a lot of archery shops in Michigan, I've dealt with a lot of shops being, you know, working for quiet cat and, and directly with them. When I took my bow to you last year, it, you could just tell that you were extremely passionate about it. You really knew your stuff, and and you really just cared about the fine details. There's so many times I dropped my bow off <laughs> to archery shops, and it, it's like they just kind of throw stuff together, and they don't paper tune, they don't do anything. Uh, in fact, I had an archery shop in Colorado when I, I first moved out here and, and took my bow there, you know, I was like, Hey, like, do you paper tune? Like, that's kind of an important, right? And at the same time, like I, I didn't know a ton about like bows and I mean, I do, but like as far as paper tuning and that whole setup and he's like, Oh, you don't need to do that. Like that's overrated. <laughs> I was like, well, I think it's pretty important. Like, I think it's kind of crazy that you don't like actually tune setups and stuff like that. But, um, you know, that's the reality I think, but it, it seems like with what you're doing, your passion for it, your drive, uh, your knowledge and just your attention to detail is totally there, man. So hats off to you. Well, I appreciate it. Attention to detail is so key. That's and there's a process and you have to understand the process and you know, what steps come before another. So, you know, you, you don't, there's just so many things that can have a backfire effect if you don't do it the right way, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. and it's, it's definitely a, uh, you know, when you come to the finished product, you, everything, every, every stone has to be un, unturned. So I'm not sitting there worried about something going on when that person walks out the door. Um, and that's pretty important to me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Especially here in the West. I mean, it's, it just seems like with, with elk hunting, mountain hunting, you're just beating the crap out of your equipment. You're, you're slipping, you're falling, you're going through some nasty downfall. Everything's got to be tight. Uh, and that's one thing that stuck out to me too. You're like, you know, a drop away rest. When I, when I brought it to you, I just had the, the standard kind of screw with the clamp design that, you know, came off the string and you immediately pointed that out. You're like, that's a point of failure that can move, that can slip. Um, so we, you, you tied that in directly. Same thing with my peep, you know, you, you served everything in and tied everything just so it, it can't go anywhere. It can't really fail unless you <laughs> absolutely break it, which is, which is pretty neat. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, I want to cover just a little bit of like uh, technical specs of like, you know, because if you're not familiar with archery and, and bow hunting and, and just bows in general, I just want to cover a few technical uh, specs or jargon. And there's a lot of different, you know, technical terms that are thrown around in the archery world. But I want to cover brace height and, and maybe what that means, uh, axe of the axle, and the length there and, and how that relates to maybe performance and shootability, um, you know, IBO speeds, uh, differences in risers or cam design, stuff like that. But let's, uh, let's start with brace height. What, tell us a little bit about brace height and, and what exactly that is. Well, I mean, technically brace height is just a measurement of, you know, when the bow is at static, the string to the throat of the grit, um, and there's a lot of terms that people can get kind of carried away with, but it's, it really goes hand in hand with other aspects of the bow as much as anything else. You know, you can have, you know, a bow with a seven inch brace height is, has traditionally been considered a really forgiving bow, which I totally, um, I agree with a hundred percent, but guys say, Oh, a six inch brace height bow. That's, you know, that's not going to be accurate whatsoever, but you have to take into into account, you know, other measurements of the bow, like the axle to axle length, how big the cams are, uh, what the draw length of the shooter is. There's just so many different pieces that all those measurements at, you know, they add up into one thing, which is yeah. how the bow feels at full draw and how it shoots. So but that technically speaking, that's what brace height is. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Well, it, it just seems like, like you said, with a lot of aspects of a bow and its design, all of it has to equal a certain part and it's got to be just the right formula and all the pieces working together in order to, to be shootable. Um, you know, consistent, uh, a smooth draw cycle, uh, you know, fast, all, all the things kind of, kind of built together. So that makes total sense. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, axle to axle, and that's that's just strictly the measurement between um, you know the axles or on the cams, correct? Exactly. That's just one axle at the end of each limb, the connecting point between your cams and your limbs to another, um, which can also kind of be misleading as well. Um, you know, the riser length is huge, and the cam size is huge too. But if you have a a, you know, a 34 inch axle to axle bow, generally speaking, I think if we're talking from a hunting standpoint, that's going to be a somewhat, you know, longer bow, at least to, you know, a, a bigger audience, especially if we're accounting for the whitetail crowd as well. Um, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of longer bows myself. You know, if you get a 34 inch bow with the, especially with nowadays designs with these either past parallel or parallel limb designs with longer risers, um, in these bigger cams, you're going to get a real broad string, string angle at full draw, which is huge. And then the stability of that longer riser, um, those three things are kind of, they're going to add up, you know, given the bow set up correctly and it fits the person, right. It's going to be a, an accurate bow for sure. Especially if we're talking out West. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I've, I've traditionally shot somewhere around 30 inch or, you know, 31 inch axle axle bows with, you know, relatively compact and, and this year I, I switched to the, the expedition archery Mako and that's got a short brace height and that's a, that's, it's a five inch brace height, which kind of, you know, to me, I was like a little unsure about it at the beginning, but, uh, you know, it's, it's an absolute shooter, uh, for how it's designed, but the, 
that being a longer axle axle length and I'm six two and I got a pretty long draw length, I just I can already tell that that thirty three inch design, I can shoot that thing better and it just feels more comfortable because of my build. So um, I I can definitely yeah. See I mean draw length draw length has to be you know brought into the equation with any of that as well. That's huge. Yeah. You know a guy with a twenty seven inch draw compared to a 30 inch draw when we're talking bow specs there's a whole that's a whole nother ball game there you know yeah yeah so what you're saying is if if somebody had like a a 27 inch draw maybe a 34 inch bow uh wouldn't shoot as good for them and vice versa maybe uh you know somebody with a 30 inch draw and a well you know, it, it, there's two ends of the spectrum here okay a guy with a 27 inch draw you know, theoretically can get away with shooting a, a Matthews, you know, vertex or triax, triax per se, um, and gain a little bit of that speed back, but still have a nice forgiving draw cycle and a forgiving string angle at full draw per se, while at the same time, a guy with a little bit longer draw like myself, I'm about 30 and a half. I, there's just no way I could shoot a bow like that. Yeah. Um, it's just way too sharp of a string angle. I'm not going to have a comfortable anchor point. Um, so give and take, like I said, those, those guys are going to get a little bit of speed back for sure while still attaining, you know, a, a similar forgiveness. Whereas if I tried to shoot a bow like that, I can tell you right now, I'm, I'm going to struggle. I'm, I'm definitely leaning more towards a longer bow regardless. Yeah. 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 That makes and total sense. Brace height totally plays a role in there too. Yeah. hundred percent. Now, uh, in regards to brace height too, like as far as like shooting and, and it just maybe let's say more for the advanced archer, would you say like a shorter brace height would be for somebody who is a more seasoned uh, person behind the bow and like a longer brace height would be for somebody that's maybe just starting out cause it's more forgiving or, or what's the concept there? I, the brace height thing is hard just because if you're getting in that five region, I think for most it's a little short and just from my perspective. Um, but it depends on their stance, um, their grip, you know, where their, you know, where their forearm is a, a five inch brace is definitely asking for the potential of some string contact on the arm for sure. Okay. Even if it is a shorter archer, but these bows are so fast nowadays too that aside from the potential string contact, you also have, you know, the time the string is moving. And that's, that's another factor with the, with the brace height. So obviously a seven, seven plus inch brace height bow from full draw to static, that string is not moving nearly as long as a bow with a five inch brace. It has too much too you know, farther travel and it's going to be closer to the grip. So there's just, <laughs> you have a few different realms that you're working with there, but the biggest thing you know, given the bow fits you and you have correct form and anchor and everything is also, you know, bar none, the feeling of it too. I mean, it's, if you have an experienced archer, you know, it's to each their own to an extent, you know, that's a, that's a big part of it too. Yeah. Yeah. How comfortable you are. And, and, and just strictly, I mean, you could have one bow that's, you know, this spec and you have another bow that is is the exact same specs and and one's just going to feel better for you that's just the name of the game and whatever you're most comfortable with i think you should do that and and like you said be be set up for uh, have everything properly set up and tuned and everything and 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 really just comes down to personal preference it it can but there can be there's a line there too i mean you can 
I mean, there was a time where I thought I knew what was good for me in terms of how both felt, um, but it actually wasn't true. So you, you definitely have to, you have to put some time in and you have to go through a few different bows to discover that I, I feel from my own experience. Um, you know, just for example, when I, I set up a, an elite energy 35, when it came out, what, three or four years ago. And at the time, you know, I've definitely learned a lot since then, but at the time, you know, I thought super high let off rock solid back walls, you know, it felt like I could hold it back all day. I thought from a hunting standpoint, man, this is going to be ideal, but I did not shoot it well whatsoever because for me, and I think this is probably true for more people than, than you would think. And that, you know, other people would even be aware of I lost track of where I was at once I was in the Valley and at the back wall, it was just, there was so much let off. And with the hard back wall, there's zero, you know, zero give to that wall whatsoever. I would get extremely complacent and relaxed and lose track of where I was at. And it would actually hurt me a lot with my shot process and my, my execution. Um, so, you know, kind of knowing how much holding weight in turn or AKA your let off, is really important. A lot of people are shooting too much let off in my, in my opinion, you know, when you get up beyond 80%, you're flirting with a few things. Um, along with what I just talked about that kind of complacency and not knowing where you're at. Um, you also have very little tension on the string at full draw. And I've dealt with a lot of cases where a bow is set up, right. And that person might have good form, but when you're dealing with that much let off and that little string tension, any, any sort of facial contact or, you know, form flaws, even if the anchor's in the right spot, pressure, you name it, is going to have a much more profound effect on that, how that arrow tracks coming off the string. Mm. I didn't even think about that, but that, that does make a lot of sense. And it, is that, is that why some states have a limited, you know, there a cap at let off, or is that in it just in, due to like advantage of a, like a hunting scenario? I would, yeah, I would say more of the latter. Okay, got when it. They, when they bring that into play, for okay. sure. Okay, that makes sense. But I didn't even think about that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've I've had bows in the past that have a really solid back wall and a, and a really high let off, like an eighty five percent or whatever. And and you're right, like it almost it almost kind of scares you and, and, and sometimes you get too complacent and the bow will just, <laughs> sometimes you, 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 it just rocks you forward, you know, cause you're, you're not yeah. ready for it and you're, you're not, you can't feel it. So that makes sense. A- absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when I had that bow set up, you know, totally ready to go out hunting, I remember I put it on the, uh, on the scale and I brought it to full draw and I completely let my hands off the bow slowly and the weight of the bow kept the bow at full draw. I mean, that's how much let off there was. And that Holy was cow. just crazy. <laughs> yeah. So you going back to what I initially said, you, you really have to, you, you do, there's a lot of time that needs to be put in and shooting multiple bows to really find what works for you. Um, and that's, that's important. Whether you think it feels right, actually knowing what works for you, you know, in terms of results, when you're actually shooting, um, that's gigantic. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So like if someone's new to archery, like what, what is the process that you go through? Like if somebody walked up to you and was like, Hey, uh, you know, set me up with a bow, what, 
throw out, you know, let's say maybe a budget or, or pricing, but like, how would you go about that? Would you just give them a handful of bows to maybe shoot or would you set something up that you think is good based on this or that? Like walk us through that. It's, that's a tough one. Um, I kind of operate in a way where I, I really don't want to undercut anybody. You know, I'm, I'll tell them straight up, like, you're dealing with a smaller window than the entire market there too, because there's, as far as I'm concerned, once you get over that 30 inch draw length threshold, your options dwindle quickly. Um, once you get into those longer draw length ranges, you really, um, your, your options of a bow that are going to work, you know, legitimately for you go down in a hurry because there's some great options out there. Like, you know, the Hoyt Nitrix, or the power max or um you know bowtech has a few great options also through diamond um the fuel is one that's a little lower priced or the matthews tactic that's another good one those are great options and you can build them out you know for the price they're incredible but if you get over to that 30 inch mark you're technically as far as i'm concerned you're kind of out of out of options on that end of the spectrum you got to be ready to spend either either find a used bow or if you're going to buy new you got to be ready to spend more than than you initially thought probably yeah yeah that makes sense so a lot of it's just about their build and and whatever and then and then i guess like what you know what would you go through to like set up the right bow are you, do you actually you know measure for draw length and then and then set accordingly and then set the peep like walk us through those next steps of like you actually have the bow uh, what are you going through that setup process? I first off, you know, initially finding out their draw length, you know, exactly what their draw length is going to be is going to be is really important. Um, you know, you can you can take someone's wingspan and divide it by two and a half, and that's I would call a, a guesstimate. It can sometimes be a pretty close guesstimate, but everybody's builds are so different. I've definitely had it in the past where they end up being an inch off from what that measurement was. Um, you know, how broad somebody's shoulders are, you know, how long their neck, their, their facial structure, what their stance is like, how are they perfectly perpendicular or are they somewhat open? There's just that angle that that creates. There's so many, um, it's so different from person to person. So you can't just kind of go the easy way on the measurement and say, Oh, that's your drawing. You really have to hone in on what they're going to actually be. And then I don't, I don't put a peep in the bow until one, I know the draw length is, is dead on and I have developed the anchor point for them as well. The peep is kind of the last thing I do for, you know, once I get that draw, I usually have to spend some time um, showing them how to, to dictate that bow at full draw to get it in the position that we want it to be in. Um, you know, first I kind of go through stance and how they want to be standing and then the grip, the grip is huge. Grip is often way overlooked. Um, it's essentially your grip is just pressure on your palm um, and your fingers should be relaxed because if people start putting a lot of pressure from their fingers then they're going to be torquing that bow. And then, um, you know, at, once the bow is at full draw, you know, you're only holding, obviously it depends on the bow, but you're only holding, you know, at, most on these hunting bows 25 percent of peak weight so once that person gets comfortable with how that bow feels at full draw i show them how easy it is to kind of dictate that bow and where that triangle that string makes is on your face 
And then I kind of, a lot of times I'll take video or photos um, and show them where it's at and then show them where, where it should be. And I'll shoot so they can see the visual aspect is huge. Um, watching them or having them watch me come to full draw and shoot and find my anchor and then taking a picture of where they're at, if it's not where I want it to be and then showing it to them, that helps a ton. That helps a lot. And then obviously in that is, is also finding the poundage, you know, you, you definitely, a lot of people are shooting too much poundage in my opinion. Um, but at the same time, you want to be working for it a little bit. You don't want to just yank the bow back super, you know, no problem. There's, you want, there, there's a middle ground you want to be in where you can, you can hold that bow up where you want to be aiming and draw the bow back properly um, and still work for it a little bit but not struggle to get it back either. So, and then from there, I kind of, I work on execution and the, the last step, once I know they're comfortable with the anchor and everything like that is finding a piece site. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember, Location. Uh, you, yeah, I remember you doing that last year for, uh, for Jenna's setup and, and, and we went through all that stuff, which is, which is really, really cool. Um, one thing I, you know, how do you tell if you, if you, if somebody has too long of a draw length, like sometimes I've often wondered like if it's too short or if it's too long, like how do you find that sweet spot? Is it just like their arms kicked in or they can't get their anchor point down? Like, is it, you know, is there a number of factors to look for or are, are most people shooting the wrong draw length and maybe it needs a half inch adjustment? Does that make a big difference? Like walk us through that. Well, a half inch adjustment does, can make a huge difference. Um, and if, if we're talking too long or too short, you know, I definitely see it's, it's worse when people are shooting too long, you can get away with shooting too short all day long because it actually asks you to, to pull on that bow more. Um, you just have a lot more leverage with everything, with your execution, drawing the bow back. Now, obviously you can go with, you know, two inches too short is, is pretty short, um, but if you're even half an inch too long, as far as I'm concerned, um, you're going to, you're going to struggle. You're going to start collapsing. There's, there's a point that you just can't reach because you're just, you're just pulling the arms hyperextended. I mean, the biggest one is just the anchor point and where the string is on the face. That's, that's number one. I can pick that out in a hurry. Um, but yeah, a half inch can make a, a big difference. That's for sure. Got it. Got it. That's good to know. So let's, let's even talk. a quarter inch for guys that are really honed in on, on how a bow should feel that have maybe shot the same bow for, you know, multiple years. And it's, you know, it's exactly the way it should be. And they're very dynamic with it because they're so used to it. Um, you know, even a quarter inch can make a difference with them. If they're getting the, a new bow for the first time in a while, you know, messing with, with your cable length, obviously depending on the bow, um, you can in your D loop length, you can, uh, you can really tweak a bow to get exactly what you need out of it. Yeah. It's well, that's the one thing I'm, I, I'm just gathered over the year. There's so many different variables to a setup. It's just, it's just mind boggling when you actually step back and think about every little thing on a bow and every little thing that can affect its flight and its performance. And, and, uh, you know, from human error to how it's set up and, how it's executed and your release and everything. It's just, it's just crazy, which, which is probably why you're so, you know, fascinated by it. It's, it's like no one bow is the same, right? Like everything's a little bit different. This person's different. This bow's different, um, which makes it interesting. I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. 
And it, uh, one analogy that I've used, I don't know if it's the best one, but I, I seem to think it works, especially for people to wrap their head around it, uh, is it's almost like a golf swing. Um, except aside from that, instead of clubs, you have a piece of equipment that has so much going on in and of itself, aside from your own form and what's going on with your shot process. So there's so much in how those two kind of coincide with each other that's going on. And when you put it all together and everything works as a unit and you have a fluid shot, that's, that's, that's really what you strive for. And it's awesome to be able to put somebody else onto that and kind of, you know, watch it all come to fruition. And then they send you pictures and texts and, and then photos of success in the field. That's, that's, that's just, that's the pinnacle for me. I'm sure. Especially when I'm, when I'm not in the field myself, but that, well, that's that's got to be the downfall of uh, being an archery technician working on bows. You're you're working while everyone else is out hunting, and uh, oh, it's such <laughs> a big conflict of interest. That sucks. That sucks. I'm sure. Um, that's that's got to be tough. But at the same time, it's it's got to be pr- pretty fulfilling, like you said, getting to see somebody Very. do that. So. Let, let's talk a little bit about arrow setup and maybe maybe geared a little bit more towards western hunting and and maybe elk hunting specifically i mean you're taking longer shots it's a it potentially uh it's a bigger animal for sure it seems like as of the last couple of years everyone seems to be focusing a little bit more on maybe uh heavier arrows and and something that penetrates more but i've also wondered you know can you go too heavy and how that affects the arrow flight and the spine? Like talk to us a little bit about like, you know, the spine of an arrow weight in, in regards to Western hunting and, and maybe trying to obtain that sweet spot of optimal arrow flight penetration and kinetic energy, all that stuff. Well, pertaining to, you know, hunting in the mountains, I guess first I'll, I'll get into bows and accessories. Cause I think, it's really important just with my own experience and what I've seen in the shop during the midst of hunting season. And that is the durability is number one, just before we get into arrows and everything. Okay. Um, you and I are both from a, a place where you climb up a tree and your bow is an ornament, you hang it and then you climb down when you're done out here. There is so much that can go wrong. Um, kind of my motto that I've used the last couple of years is, you want all of your margin for error to be on you and you only, not your equipment whatsoever. Um, so durability for me is huge, whether it's bow brand, accessories, you name it. I mean, all of these bows nowadays from, from these, you know, more renowned companies, if you're set up right and the bow fits you and it's tuned right, they're going to, they're going to perform well and you're shooting the right arrow but it comes down to durability for me. You know, I, I have seen so many bows rebuilt so many bows that, you know, like Hoyt, for example, their high end designs won't go into production unless they survive a thousand dry fires at 80 pounds, 30 inches. That's, you know, for, for an example, that's huge. And I've had guys dry fire bows in the shop and, you know, (laughs) I've, I've seen a carbon Hoyt get dry fired and pulled it off the wall and put it together and it was fine. And I've seen other boats, you know, that's just, I'm not biased. That's just one story I have. Um, and, but I've seen other companies as well without naming them where stuff happens in the field. The, you know, somebody comes to full draw, there's a stick stuck in the track, the string gets pulled off the cam track and the bow is just 
done. It's you got bent cans, you got limb issues, you name it. And there's, I can't put a, a high enough value on durability because if it's a tougher bow, most of the time, it uh, you put it in the press and put the string back on, and everything's everything's pretty good to go. Yeah. Um, so that's huge, especially when I've seen how many guys come out. They drive a thousand miles. They've spent all this money on tags, equipment. They spend all this time practicing. They have a, a sentimental and emotional investment in all of it. And then they come out with one bow and the first day of their hunt, something happens and they're shit out of luck. I mean, I've had bows overnighted. It's, it's crazy. So that, that is gigantic for me as far as I'm concerned, especially if we're talking Western hunting. Yeah. Yeah. Now, would you recommend somebody having a backup bow if at all possible? If, if you have the means, 100%. I, I always, personally, I always have two bows that are set up and ready to go. Um, just with what I've seen, I think if, if you can afford it and you have the means to do it, I 100% think that you should do that. Especially if you're traveling, you know, long distances to go on a hunt that you've prepared for, you spent money on. I think 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, that a hundred percent. If you, if you can do it, that's great. Uh, for sure. Cause I said cheap, not a cheap insurance policy, but it's an insurance policy and that's all you can ask for when you're a thousand miles from home in the middle of nowhere and something happens. Absolutely. Now, uh, I I've seen some stuff with like bow presses and like stuff that you can do in the field. Is there any like sort of like equipment that you carry with you or you just have your backup bow and that's it? Um, with the hunting that I've done, it's, it's had to be pretty close to home given what my last, you know, four or five years has, has, uh, consisted of during archery season. I don't take much with me in the field. I, I bring some, a fair amount of loop rope material and definitely all the, all the Allen sizes I might need for my sight or my rest. But aside from that, I've been pretty close to whatever I need. You know, so I, I'm not bringing any portable bow presses or anything like that in the field myself. You know, if I was going on some hunt in the Yukon or somewhere crazy long hunt, that would, might be a different story. But it's definitely situational. Um, at the same time, there are some uh, there are what I would consider some some dangerous scenarios with people that don't know what they're doing when it comes to working on a bow that might bring a portable bow press with them. Uh, that I <laughs> hope I don't hear about, you yeah, know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. You certainly got to know what you're doing. a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, uh, so we talked to, again, I, I'm a hundred percent with you durability and, and like I touched on earlier, you know, you making the adjustments to my bow, such as tying in the peep, you know, and, and serving that in, uh, making sure the drop away is tied in, not just on some clamp or, you know, some mechanism that with a screw that can fail. Uh, you've tied that all in. You've, you've checked everything, everything's set up. Um, the D loop, you know, is, is spot on a hundred percent durability and, and, and leave the, uh, <laughs> failure or, you know, something going wrong to the shooter, not your equipment. Yeah. Um, that, that's yeah. a huge, huge thing. Uh, so let, yeah. Let, and that, that motto real quick, doesn't just tie into durability. I mean, that's setup wise. Yeah. That's tuning. That's, that's you being responsible for how much you practice and being aware of your limitations mm-hmm. situationally that, that, that ties into all of it. Yeah. Just wanted to say that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It makes a hundred percent being prepared. And, uh, 
let let's touch base on that on the on the arrow setup um you know what's what's the ideal i know it's just tough to say like what's the best setup for for elk hunting but like you know maybe what are some of the things we should be looking for and and making sure that our arrows are set up maybe for a heavier animal maybe some longer shots uh bigger game like what what do you kind of look for there well i think i think a heavy arrow is you know especially if we're talking out west is is aside from shot placement and arrow flight those are the two number ones um aside from that the weight of the arrow is is definitely i think your your next uh topic of, dis- of discussion i think a heavy arrow is is paramount if we're talking penetration you know um but there's a there's a fine line i mean you need to be aware of your setup and what kind of poundage you're shooting you know how how much power does your bow have what's your draw length you know you don't want to be arcing a 600 grain arrow if you're a 27 inch draw shooting 60 pounds shooting rainbows that's that <laughs> that's uh, there's definitely a fine line there's a happy medium of trajectory and overall arrow weight for sure for sure but i think you know number one um aside that that aside i think a heavy arrow is king when it comes to penetration along with what's on the end of the arrow so that's another rabbit hole we can go down to um, yeah but you know go, going into that I've heard this number thrown around a few times and don't quote me cause I can't, I don't have a source if it's 100% <laughs> accurate, but I have been, you know, I, I've been told that 50% of the elk shot with a bow in Colorado aren't recovered. And mm. that's just, to me, that's just staggering. Um, and you know, your, your arrow setup, you know, coinciding with your bow is, is gigantic. I can believe you know, that. I can believe that. Uh, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's, unrealistic especially when you when you talk about the the harvest statistics are hovering around 10 percent for archery you you, yeah. you wonder how much of that is due to the shot or just not getting enough penetration because i mean i i'll just admit you know my first year elk hunting i was i was ignorant i mean i really was like i used my same setup on a on whitetail and and the same expandable broadheads and i just literally didn't change a thing and and on the first elk i shot i mean uh granted it was 40 yards but i only got one lung you know i mean did i hit a rib did i whatever Uh, i know i got lung blood uh because it was bubbly on the blood trail but i know for a fact that penetration just wasn't there and you know that's just being ignorant and and not really knowing and i feel like there's probably a lot of people in that same boat that just head out west with their same setup and and maybe you should evaluate that a little further yeah i mean i think like i said i'll go back to shot placement and arrow flight because i think those are king um you know just for example if an arrow is not flying true if you think about that projectile you know hitting something and it's not you know tip to tail is not flying in the same path of direction you know that energy dissipates in a hurry whereas if you have if you have you know laser-like arrow flight characteristics that uh that knock is going to be following where the point of the arrow is you have concentrated energy so that paired with you know shot placement you you are upping your odds so much especially you know if you put in the time and you're prepared yourself um so I think, you know, going back to what we were just talking about, I have seen so many guys, especially out-of-state guys that come in and 
one, their arrow and their bow setups are geared way more towards shooting whitetails. Um, you know, 400 grain arrows or less around that lower poundage. Um, and their, their, their bows aren't tuned correctly and they're not prepared. And you just, you add all that up and it's just a, a, a bad combination. Um, they're just, people just asking to, to, to wound elk. Um, so there's so many, there's so many areas that each hunter ethically, I think is, um, is responsible for that. Uh, it all adds up. There's just, there's so many pieces, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Now, uh, do you tune your bow to the arrow or is the arrow tuned to the bow? It's no. kind of like the chicken or the egg thing. In my like opinion, what? in my opinion, it's flip flop. Okay. When, like when I'm setting up a bow for myself, for any, like anybody, it's, you want to find the, the arrow that is going to pair best with that bow setup. Um, I have definitely set up a fair amount of bows where guys come in they hand me a bow and they hand me an arrow and they say, okay, let's do this. And I just am kind of in my head shake, you know, I'm grinding my teeth a little bit because I know just <laughs> that it, it doesn't work like that. You know, you need to, there's a lot that shooting through the paper can tell you, especially when it comes to arrow spine um, and matching, matching that spine to that setup is really important for sure. Um, so matching the arrow to the bow is, is the correct answer there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, uh, I want to talk about paper tuning, but it is, is, you know, like when you buy a pack of arrows and you basically can look on the back and it, and it says, all right, here's your draw length, here's your draw weight. And you kind of match up on the matrix, right? Is that, that's basically kind of how you, you start, or is there other variables that you should look for? For, for the most part, for the most part, okay. I, I'll be honest with you. I've definitely set up handful of bows um where the chart is not the correct indicator especially if we're talking of you know if guys are getting carried away with foc even if they're accounting for that you know on the chart it doesn't matter i've definitely set up a couple bows where the best results on paper and at the range longer distances they were just flabbergasted guys that you know definitely have a good base of knowledge but they were just flabbergasted that that that's the arrow that ended up being the most conducive for that setup so definitely don't live and die by the chart as far as i'm concerned with what i've seen personally yeah. for the most part yes but not every time <laughs> yeah well to get you in the ballpark and like you said there's going to be some discrepancies there and it's not a perfect system but um you know that's what it that's where it pays to have a good bow technician uh like yourself <laughs> to be able to find that setup um talk, talk a little bit about paper tuning and in that whole process because i'll just be honest before before i even you know uh, had you work on my bow uh i had never actually had my bow paper tuned and and it made a huge difference i'm probably making myself sound like an idiot but like you know i'd taken it to other archery shops and they were just like no we don't really do that it's overrated but when you did it it made my bow perform a hell of a lot better It, it it there was less vibration uh it was smoother the the arrow flew better it seemed like there's more penetration like all the above so uh I feel like that's something that everyone just needs to do, especially if you're 
Western big game hunting, taking longer shots. It's a bigger animal. I think it's even heightened, uh, you know, more heightened when, when you've got a bigger animal and further shot distances. Yeah, definitely. And there's, there's a few things I kind of want to touch on there. I am, I'm definitely a huge proponent of shooting through the paper, but at the same time, um, a bow is designed. There's a, a certain spectrum. You have to, there's a way to set them up, you know, by each manufacturer's um, recommendation, but also just pretty simple stuff like your cam lean, your center shot, your cam timing, and, you know, in which order you address each one of those, because if you do it in the wrong order, you can then have effects on the other without knowing it. But you can easily, the paper can hide things that will show themselves without you potentially knowing it. You know, if a guy's setting up a bow by himself and he just starts moving his rest around until he achieves a good tear through paper, that does not mean that, you know, he's good to go. Um, you, there's a lot of things that can, you know, like I said, kind of reveal themselves, you know, as he steps back farther distances and then in turn screws broadheads on there. Um, paper, you know, doing it right, I, I love paper, especially if a bow is set up right. Um and for showing people their own flaws, whether it's their own form, their facial contact, you, na you name it. Um, but I've definitely set up a, a handful of bows, even for myself, where it was a perfect tear through paper. But as I started shooting, I'm like, well, what's going on here? There's something funky. Um, you know, whether the arrow is a little weak and it doesn't show it through the paper, um, that's a good example. But definitely, like I said, if a guy just starts cranking screws on his rest, that's um, <laughs> and you're way outside of what the center shot should be, uh, and then he goes and screws a broadhead on, well, well it's shot perfect through paper. Um, but <laughs> that that is not the answer. And there's kind of a fine line here, too, because some guys might not know what the results are because they don't shoot enough and or have the ability to really, you know, hash out if there is a problem or what the problem is. Um, that's also a big one too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and kind of what I've always like read or seen people talk about paper tuning. It's, it's that exact thing. It's like just moving your rest or your knock point or, you know, whatever. And, and like I said, you can do that to a certain extent, but you know, just because you do that doesn't, you might be throwing it off of, of square or like the true, you know, where it should be going. And, and basically what you're seeing, saying, uh, correct me if what I'm wrong, but you know, you need to maybe loosen or, or add some twists to the, the cables or, you know, do some timing with the cam by adding or removing twists. Is that kind of the gist of it? Yeah. I mean, there's, Oh man, we're just going back to other stuff in my head here. I mean, like one example that really kind of I've seen and I've messed with that I, I don't like just, just for an example here is, um, you know, let's say you're getting a, a certain vertical tear and you advance one cam ahead of the other to compensate for that. Well, here you, you might have a, a shooter that is not aware of, you know, whether he shoots static or is he, pulling through the shot is he really dynamic because if, if we're talking with staggering the cams a little bit with with somebody who might have somewhat of a foundation and knows how to work on bows a little bit he might not know that you know just because you you made a little adjustment on one of the cams to 
to make the arrow look good through paper. Now you're having an inconsistent, you know, hold on the wall with that archer potentially where, and he's, he's missing high or low down range, but he doesn't know why. And that's cause he's not super dynamic on that back wall. You know, ah. if, if you have a really relaxed shooter, there's going to be some variation on the pressure on the back wall for sure. God, so that's, that makes, I mean, that's just one yeah. example, one example. Yeah. Well, as we continue this conversation, I feel like one, I'm, I'm learning a lot, but I'm also like just realizing how many different things affect other things and how it's all intermingled together. And you can change one little thing and it affects a whole number of, of other variables. And as we talk about this, I'm just, my mind is getting like <laughs> wrapped around a tree. I feel like. <laughs> well, there's so many rabbit holes, man. There's so many. And you know, this also going back to one thing you said, which is kind of the turn and burn uh, aspect that you might've had with an archery shop is a lot. My good analogy for it is a lot of these, um, shops as they grow it's all about turn and burn how many people can they get through because that's the name of the game when it comes to making money but i really like the smaller shops that are still in business because you just know that it's the reputation that keeps them in business yeah because it does take a lot of time to make a setup right yeah and that shows like you said i've seen a lot of shops across the country and and you know then there's the ones that just just are there because of word of mouth and they have that base that's just loyal because they know it's it's good work and and they're taking their time and 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 making sure everything's set up correctly so i'm i'm totally with you there for sure yeah and i I, by no means do i want to like throw smack down on any shops whatsoever i'm just i'm just i'm just pointing out the fact that i know it to do it right it takes it does take a lot of time yeah yeah. It really does. And unfortunately, there's a huge lack of knowledge out there for the consumer base because they take so much time to attain that level of knowledge, for one. And then there's also, you know, miseducation. There's some there's some bad facts out there, too. So there's just so much. If people are researching on their own, they have to go. They have to spend a lot of time to get it right, you know. A hundred percent. hundred percent. So we talked about paper tuning and, and kind of that process and, and what it entails. I think most people know what that is, shooting through the paper, seeing the tears and, and, and making the adjustments. But um, you know, let's talk about like shooting. You touched on it a little bit, but let's talk about like form and, and, and maybe uh, shooting tips and, and, and grip. And, uh, you know, there's like so many different variables and, and, to, to a certain extent, I feel like some of it comes down to, you know, how, what feels comfortable and, and, and what comes natural to you. But like, are there any certain things with, with grips or facial contact or, um, your arm position or, uh, release, like any, anything like that, that, you know, maybe should be kind of more of a standard practice and then tweak from there. Or uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, that there's there's a lot of thoughts um (laughs) you know when it comes to grip your stance plays a role with your grip as well because you know the angle your body is at which in turn kind of dictates how you're pulling and your dynamic on the shot is definitely going to have an effect on your grip pressure um so being aware of all those things from shot to shot is important 
Um, but definitely, you know, grabbing the bow the right way. I wouldn't, I actually, I don't like the word grab because it's more of like a progressive pressure and repeating that pressure shot to shot. Um, you know, I like to use kind of the lifeline of your hand and other people out there in the industry have used that a lot, but it is a good reference point, um, of where you kind of want that pressure to be for sure. But the big thing is just, is what your fingers are doing. If people are putting a lot of torque on the front of that grip with their fingers unknowingly and a lot of pressure, it can just have so much effect laterally on the shot and the arrow flight as that bow is going off in terms of grip. Um, facial, facial, facial pressure is huge for sure. Um, people, a lot of time as they're shooting more and more shots and as practice goes on throughout the months, um, they may be having an effect on that arrow due to facial pressure without even knowing it because subconsciously there's an affirmation to where they're, where they're, they are, you know, putting pressure on their face on that string because of their anchor point as time goes on. Um, it's like a, and I like to use the word subconscious definitely because they don't even know it. They don't know it unless somebody's there to point it out to them. Um, so that, that's a big one for sure. You know, especially if the anchor's in the wrong place on the face, then you have fletchings touching along with on the string, you know, if the string's too high in the nose and, and they're pressing hard and it ends up, you know, as that shot goes off, the string's getting kicked because it's then going over the tip of the nose. I mean, there's so much to uh, elaborate on without having showing pictures or anything, you know? Oh yeah. hundred percent. But I think you're doing a very good job about it. <laughs> you're giving me a good <laughs> picture in my mind. Uh, I appreciate it. Do you think like good shooting form is, is more, uh, tied to like just repeat repeatability of like a, like being able to repeat certain things, or do you think it just comes down to good mechanics and, and overall form, or is it just more like I can repeat the same thing every time. So I, I know it's this consistent as, as, as it's, so to speak. it's all, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about consistency. That's what archery is all about. You know, given the bow is set up correctly and the bow is tuned, the arrows consistent. Um, if you can do the exact same thing every time, you know, that being said, if you can do the same thing every time, you're going to have good results for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the only reason I made that analogy is, is just be, it comes back to golf. Like you were talking about earlier, my, my uncle's a PGA golf pro, uh, he's a teaching pro. So he's like, it doesn't necessarily matter. Like if you're, you got an open face swing or, or whatever, it's like, you just need to be able to obviously have good form, but you need to be able to repeat that every time. And that's what pros do best. They're so repeatable in their swing and it's perfect. And they, and they practice, you know, thousands of <laughs> shots a day. I mean, if, if the average yeah. person took the, took the same mentality and the same pro approach as maybe a professional would, whether it's a professional archer or a golfer, basketball player, I think we'd all find ourselves uh, making huge leaps and bounds in our, in our shooting and, and uh, you know, form and accuracy for sure. Yeah. And there's, there's definitely like a, um, kind of a model to follow, but at the same time, like, like I said before, once you have that, you, you have to find your own little niche, um, and releases play a big role too. Yeah. Talk um, to us about some releases. A lot, a lot of people just kind of grab a wrist strap off the wall and off they go. 
Um, and unfortunately it takes a lot of time that a lot of places when people are getting set up and I've been there too, just don't have the time to go into releases and, and the differences between them and the uh, effects if you're, if you're doing it wrong. But the word I, I like to use for the whole shot process, which is going to lead to the release is, is fluidity, I, you know, along with the golf swing analogy and everything, it's, you know, finding what you're aiming at, your stance and that your form is every, everything is good. Drawing back, establishing that anchor point, And then, you know, you want to always have a little bit of tension. That's going back to the high let off bows, you know, with a high let off bow and a wrist strap with a light trigger, guys get, they sit back there, they relax, and then they just wait. And then they just, you know, swish that finger and the trigger goes off. You definitely want to have some tension on the back wall. You want to always be pulling. And, um, you know, I could, I could talk for a while about <laughs> the phase and how to execute um, each one, but you, you want to set up each one regardless of how it is to a point where you're, you're definitely building somewhat of pressure, you know? Yeah. Yeah. makes sense. I've always thought like, uh, the thumb triggers probably weren't the best option for Western hunting just because they're not around your wrists and you can lose them or, or whatever. What, what are your thoughts on maybe, maybe like a thumb trigger versus a wrist strap, uh, in regards to a hunting scenario? Um, I think a, a thumb trigger is definitely a good stepping stone for people that, you know, want to get out of the habit of punching the trigger with the wrist strap. But at the same time, if they're not extremely conscious shot to shot of how they're using it, um, it can definitely still lead to punching the trigger in a hurry. You know, um, I definitely am a huge proponent of hinge or back tension releases. Um, but that's a big change for a lot of people. Um, and a big commitment really to do it right as well. Yeah. I've always, I've never shot a back tension release, but a part of me is just a little bit scared, uh, to be honest. <laughs> well, there's some great, there's a couple of releases out there that are awesome starters for a hinge. Um, true ball makes one called, I believe it's called the sweet spot. And then the one that I used when I first started shooting a hinge is from Carter. It's called the honey or the honey two. And, uh, in that release, it actually has a safety in it. So ah. when you press that safety in, as you're drawing back, you don't have to worry about, you know, torquing that release throughout the shot cycle. You can anchor in, let the safety out and then begin to engage, you know, the correct execution on the shot, mm. which is the, that's the, I love that release for people that are starting out. Um, I definitely, I highly recommend that because if you, if you just pick up a normal hinge and you, you have no idea how hot it's set or how cold, which in turn means how much travel there is on the trigger. And you just start trying to yank it back. Um, <laughs> that that's how bad things happen. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's what scares people from trying one, but that's the beauty of the, those. Uh, I think those are the only two that I know of that have a safety incorporated like that. Okay. That are, tech, you know, actual hinge releases. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's cool. I'll, I'll definitely have to look into that because, you know, I, I definitely want to improve my form. I want to I want to work on that stuff more. And, and I definitely see the benefit to a back tension release. And we're all guilty of it. I'm, I'm guilty of it for sure. Punching the trigger and just being the heat of the moment and you don't really get settled in. And and, uh, you know, that I'm sure it would just really help your form and, and, and just your repeat repeatability and being able to, to get the proper form and, and etiquette down. So that's pretty cool. 
Yeah, and you definitely, you know, people need to be aware that's just another piece that you're changing that you need to think about when it comes to your setup and, you know, how the arrow is coming out of the bow. If you're going from a wrist strap to a handheld, um, your, uh, your, your left and right can definitely change. So that's one thing to be conscious of for sure. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Well, sweet man. Well, what's uh, what's on the docket for you this fall? Have you have you got any hunts planned? Any out of state trips? Is it just kind of up in the air at this point? What's going on? I don't know, man. It's all changing for me right now. Um, not being at that shop anymore, I'm just kind of operating solo. But uh, I've got a couple. I've got an elk tag and a deer tag for around here for archery. But uh, I actually have to get surgery on my left elbow. Oh no. Um, and yeah, it definitely put a, uh, a kink in, in some of my plans and it's, it's having some, uh, adverse effects because shooting the bow, um, with that injury, I've started to compensate using other muscles and it's, uh, it's definitely aggravating me all over the left side of my upper body. So oh, God. we'll see. I'm just taking it easy right now, but I definitely have to, I have to get surgery at some point this winter. I'm trying to put it off, make it through archery season, but we'll see. Oh man. Well, I hope, uh, I hope that all goes well. And, 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 uh, yeah, you at least, <laughs> at least get through archery season until you have to deal with that. That's no fun. Yeah. It's, unfortunately it's from a way old injury that I re aggravated, but, um, it is what it is. If it leads to, um, me being better in the long run i'd rather get it taken care of now than 10 years from now you know yeah 100 <laughs> percent easier to deal with when you're young versus uh and I'll, I'll just state that the initial injury was not archery related <laughs> <laughs> oh man well uh shit happens right <laughs> shit happens yep <laughs> Yeah, a hundred percent. So, uh, so you, so you were working for archery shop. Now you're just doing, doing your own thing. And, and it sounds like you've got a, a, a good client base built up and, and everything like that. So you're, you're focusing on working on bows and s- still doing that. So that's, that's pretty cool. What's, yeah. what's the future hold yeah. with that? I One mean, thing you, led to another and now what that? I just say, what's what's the future hold, man? Are you gonna start? You know, your official. You gonna open up a shop? Like, what's coming down the pipe? I I don't know right now. Everything I feel so in limbo still. Um, one thing led to another, and I'm I'm uh, flying solo as far as the archery deal goes now, just as of recent. But uh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I'm just. Uh, it's still really fresh and i've got a lot of guys i'm taking care of in town and and even some from out of town that are coming um that have been clients for a while so that's that's good for now but in terms of long term i uh i don't know i couldn't tell you right now (laughs) well that's uh well because i i definitely like to hunt a little myself (laughs) so we'll we'll see well maybe you could yeah figure out figure out this hybrid setup and and uh you know you work on both throughout the rest of the year and you take September, October and November off. I think I think that's a good plan right there. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> luckily luckily being from the Midwest, I have a lot of ties to some whitetail hunting, so that I always look forward to. Yeah. And that's always definitely a, a factor when I'm thinking about how much time I dedicate during <laughs> or how much time I have dedicated during hunting time here in the past. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll, we will see. 
Well, I definitely encourage you to keep keep rolling with what you're doing, man. Uh, I tell everybody about you. I highly recommend your work and what you're doing. Again, your attention to detail and just your overall knowledge. I think it's uh, it's a rare find these days. So um, definitely keep up the good work and, and uh, appreciate all that you do. All right, Adam. I appreciate it, bud. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, man. And and uh, we'll definitely have to have you back on at some point. We'll dive into some different rabbit holes, talk some more hunting, and and uh, we'll look forward to that day. I look forward to it, man. Thank you. All right, and there it is, another episode in the books. Big thanks to Jake for coming on the show. I learned a lot. I had a great time covering all this information. And again, I think it's important to to really dial in your setup. Now is the time to make sure you've got the right arrow weight, make sure you've got the right broadheads, you've, you've tuned your bow, you've spent the time, you've, you've buttoned up some things that you know potentially could fail on a western hunt. If it's your first hunt in the mountains, you don't want anything to go wrong. And uh, as Jake mentioned, durability is key and making a foolproof setup. Don't take anything to chance. You've spent all the money. You've planned the trip. You're taking the time off of work. Uh, make sure your bow is set up and, and dialed in. So hope you guys took away some good things from this. I know I did, and uh, it's really got me jacked, and and, and I want to pick up my bow right now and, and just go shoot it. That's uh, <laughs> that's what this episode did for me. So uh, thanks again for, for coming on the show, Jake. We'll, we'll definitely have you back on in the future all right well i definitely appreciate your time for tuning in and listening keep the five star reviews coming make sure you follow sportsman's nation like them on facebook instagram uh, dan's been putting out some great videos on the sportsman's nation youtube channel so make sure you go check that out subscribe to transition wild uh, just search transition wild on itunes or Stitcher, Podbean, and subscribe. Leave that five-star review. It'd be much, much appreciated. That stuff helps out so much, and it means more to me than you know. All right, that is it. Thanks again to our partners, Expedition Archery, Skull Brew Coffee, and Outdoor Edge Knives. Give all those companies some love. Hope you guys have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon.